In November 1997, the brutal and senseless murder of a 14-year-old girl named Brina Verk in British Columbia, Canada, shocked the nation and sparked international outrage. Rena, a shy and introverted girl of Indian descent, was mercilessly beaten and drowned by a group of her own peers, most of whom were girls. The case made headlines not only for the gruesome nature of the crime, but also for the disturbing issues it brought to light, including bullying, racism, and the dangerous influence of peer pressure. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Today's episode takes us to Victoria, Canada. Victoria is located on the southern end of Vancouver Island. It's nestled between the tranquil waters of the Salish Sea and the mighty rainforests of Vancouver Island. As amazing as that sounds when reading tourist guides, there's always a seedier side to paradise, and that's where our focus is today. In the 1990s, the suburbs on the western side of Victoria were made up of hard-working citizens, many of whom struggled to get by. The crime rate in this area was higher than the national average, and many of the crimes were committed by young offenders. This area had a higher population of at-risk youth. Some of them lived on the streets, or in group homes, or their friends' couches, and Rena Verk was one of those kids. Her parents, Manjeet and Suman Verk, and their three children lived in Samich. Her father was an immigrant from India, but her mother was born and raised in nearby Victoria. They were Indian in a predominantly white neighborhood, and rather than practice the predominantly Indian Sikh religion, the Verk family were Jehovah's Witness. This was Rena's mother's influence, as this was how she was raised. These two unique-to-the-area qualities made Rena feel like she stood out. Dr. Seuss says, why fit in when you were meant to stand out, which I embrace fully now that I'm an adult, but as a young teen, most people just want to fit in and fitting in is exactly what Rena wanted. Her parents had a love marriage, rather than an arranged marriage, which had gone against the wishes of their own parents, but they were happy together and supportive of each other, and that was what was important, especially since they stood alone culturally and religiously. Rena was their firstborn. She was born in 1982, a beautiful, smiling little girl with a happy disposition, she loved animals and children and her father who doted on her. But the innocence of her youth began to fall away when she started noticing the differences she and her family had from the majority of her school peers. Her beautiful brown skin, gorgeous dark curly hair, and curvy figure made her feel self-conscious and her self-esteem struggled. Mean girls at her school zeroed in on these insecurities and made Rena a target for their bullying behavior. She would complain with her parents about this at home, but at school she would put up a brave and confident front. She wanted to look tough, so she adopted a gangster style that many of her friends wore, and that was popular at the time. You know the look. Sagging, baggy jeans, oversized t-shirts, and bandanas that defined which gang a person was affiliated with. Raina's parents were strict and protective of their brand new teenager, they implemented a 9 p.m. curfew, which she rebelled against. She wanted the same kind of freedom her gangster friends seemed to have. They could stay out until all hours, smoking cigarettes and pot and hanging out with friends. She hated that she had to be the first one to leave a party or a teen gathering. She hated her restrictions, so she pushed back against her parents' rules. Eventually, she was grounded, and that made her even more angry, so she ran away from home. 
When she returned, her parents placed even more restrictions on her, so it became a cycle of rebellion and restrictions that everybody involved hated. It got so bad that one day Rena had enough. She accused her father of abuse in an attempt to gain freedom. This was under the advice of her so-called friends. She was placed with her maternal grandparents, which still didn't give her enough freedom, so then she reported that her father sexually abused her, and while under the care of her grandparents, she attempted suicide. This move gave her what she wanted, and she was placed in foster care while an investigation into her father was being done. He was arrested for sexual abuse against Rena and put into jail. While waiting arraignment, investigators found no evidence to back up Rena's claims, and his charges were stayed by the courts. Foster care wasn't exactly what Rena wanted either, so in the fall of 1997, she retracted her allegation against her father, admitting that she lied to police about the abuse and asked to return home. Her parents graciously welcomed her back with open arms, but the old problems were quick to follow. She rebelled again, and her parents felt they couldn't handle her. She was placed in several more foster homes, where she was given the idea that if she wanted more freedom, she should move into one of the youth group homes where the kids seemed to be able to come and go as they pleased. This was her new goal, and it wasn't long before she achieved it. The kids in these homes were often rough, delinquents. They had no rules, but they did have a place to sleep and food to eat when they needed it. In between partying and random acts of violence, they had a place to rest and recover. Rena, at only 14 years old, would occasionally spend a night or two with her parents, but most of her nights were spent in the youth home. On Friday, November 14, 1997, Rena had planned to stay at her parents' house for an overnight visit. Before heading home for the night, she made plans to go to a party. A couple of 14- and 15-year-old girls told her to meet them at the parking lot of the local Walmart. After this, they went to a teen gathering spot behind a sandwich school, and as dusk came and went and night fell, there was a group of at least 30 teens hanging around, drinking, smoking cigarettes, and weed. It wasn't long before the crowd got rowdy and out of control. One of the teens had broken a school window, and a janitor called the police around 8.30 to report it. When police arrived at the scene, the kids scattered in groups to hide. Some went to a nearby convenience store, others to a local motel, but most went to a secluded area under the nearby Craigflower Bridge. Rena had gone to the convenience store, where she called her parents at 10.40 p.m., 20 minutes before her now 11 p.m. curfew. She told them she was on her way home and that she'd be there in 20 minutes, but that would be the last time that Rena's parents would hear her voice. As Rena hung up the phone, a couple of girls locked arms with her and said they were going to the Craigflower Bridge to smoke. Rena felt flattered to be included and happily accompanied them. When midnight crept in and then slipped away, Rena's parents grew worried. She hadn't shown up. They called the group home only to find out she wasn't there either. Their worry blossomed into panic. The group home alerted the police to let them know that Rena was missing. This wasn't an uncommon occurrence, as many of the kids from the youth home wouldn't return at night, but they'd come back the next day, glossy-eyed and smelling of the night's festivities, so police didn't act quickly. In fact, they didn't act at all that night. On any given night, they could have as many as 15 missing kid alerts. 
This was because, if a kid missed curfew from one of the youth homes, the homes were required to call the police. Because Rena was a ward of the state and was known to regularly miss curfew, the report to police didn't raise alarm bells. Telling Rena's parents not to worry about their daughter was like telling water not to be wet. They stayed up all night hoping to hear from her. She'd called, after all, and she'd said she'd be home in twenty minutes. Surely she would have called again if she was going to be late or not come home at all. But Rena never showed up, not to her house and not to the group home. Her parents called the Saanich police the next day, who told her they needed to wait 48 hours before they could take action. They wouldn't classify her as a missing person, and instead considered her a runaway due to her past behavior. Over the first 48 hours, Suman and Manjeet desperately began calling all of Rena's friends. One said that she was supposed to meet Rena at the local Walmart that night, but that Rena never showed up. Another said that she had seen Rena milling around the Craigflower Bridge, but that's all she knew. By Monday morning, at Rena's Shoreline School, rumors had begun to spread about a beating that had taken place under the bridge that Friday night, and Rena's name was mentioned as a possible victim of the assault. The rumors had spread through the schools and homes in the area. It was 1997, before social media, when teens existed in a world where their thoughts and movements weren't liked, shared, or tracked. They didn't have phones and direct messages. Instead, they whispered to each other in their classrooms, bedrooms, or in the school parking lots about what happened to that girl named Rena. Their parents, their teachers, and the police remained oblivious. The teenagers whispered to each other to keep the information on the down low. One girl bragged to her friends that she was responsible, and she insinuated that Rena might not return to school, ever. Before long, parents and guardians would hear the rumors, and they would report it to school officials and the police. The rumors that the police were hearing were very worrying. Meanwhile, Rena's parents were convinced that something bad had happened to her. The 48 hours had passed. That arbitrary time frame, combined with the rumors of assault, had finally pushed police into action. They began by interviewing some of Rena's friends from school and from her group home. These friends were tight-lipped. They told what little they shared from a second- or third-person perspective passed from one person to the next. They claimed not to know who was involved in the actual beating. The police were engulfed by local teen rumors and speculation and felt lost at first. Four days after Rena went missing, police would finally have a breakthrough. A resident from a different group home would come to police with a story that she had heard. This person said that the information she had was firsthand. She had the names and detailed information. A girl at her group home had been bragging about a vicious attack on Rena, one that wasn't random, it was planned. People had even been called prior to the attack to be invited to participate in it. When word got around, others asked to participate because they were angry at Rena for one reason or another. Police upgraded Rena's missing person file to the level of a criminal investigation. They searched the area under the bridge, looking for evidence, but they found nothing on one side, the area where the majority of the teens had gathered. But on the other side, a brushy, overgrown area seemed to be inaccessible, 
they'd have to search that area by boat or helicopter. In the meantime, they were finally able to get the name of the girl who actually took part in the assault, so the police made a beeline to her home to interview her. She told the following story. After Rena linked arms with the two girls, who she assumed were her friends, she was led down to the bridge. Under the bridge it was dark and creepy, and there were about twenty teens milling around waiting for Rena to arrive. They formed a semicircle around her and accused her of trying to steal another girl's boyfriend. They said she had stolen one of her friend's address books and had been calling up the boyfriends of some of the girls and asking them out. This infuriated the girls. The attack began when a young girl put her cigarette out on Rena's forehead. Then seven other girls and one boy attacked her. They hit her, punched her, and kicked her. She fell to the floor, curling into a ball, and begged them to stop. Several teenagers ran away from the fight, but others watched, horrified, as their friends turned savage, kicking and punching Rena, who lay in the mud begging them to stop. Finally, an amazing girl, an Egyptian kickboxer who was strong and tough and had a heart, told everyone to stop, shouting, She's had enough. If anyone else wants to get at Rena, they'd have to go through her first. This threat seemed to have taken the remaining crowd down a notch, and they slowly dispersed, but not before some of the teens saw Rena laying in the mud, bleeding and crying. No one offered to help her. Others watched when a little while later, she rose, then staggered onto the bridge heading towards home, but she never made it there. Back at the police station, the girl who was telling the story was able to give police names of the people who had attacked Rena. Most of them were names already known to the police, but one name stood out. Her name was Kelly Ellard. One of the police officers knew her and her family and was shocked. Their families had socialized together often, and she'd known Kelly since she was nine years old. The Kelly she knew was a normal teenager from a middle-class neighborhood who hadn't been in trouble before. Well, the police now had a list of teens involved, so they decided to gather them all at once and bring them in for questioning. When they arrived at the station, it was pandemonium. Parents and caregivers demanded to know what was going on, and teens proclaimed their innocence. Mothers had tears pouring down their faces. The teens had seen each other before being placed in separate rooms for questioning, and the horrible truth would come out. After the first attack, Rena was left alone, in horrible pain and crying under the bridge. She had a bloody nose and swollen eyes, and no one stayed to help her. She stumbled disorientedly up onto the bridge and towards her parents' house, but two of the teens were following her. One was Kelly Ellard, and the other was a boy named Warren Glowatsky. They were 15 and 16 years old, respectively. They said they wanted to make sure that Rena didn't snitch, but neither of these two kids knew Rena personally. So who were they? Well, Kelly Ellard, the girl the police officer knew, seemed to be an unlikely candidate for what just happened to Rena. She lived in View Royal, a small town often passed by as people headed into Victoria. It was a picturesque tourist destination, full of manicured gardens and quaint tea rooms. In 1997, Kelly was 15, she wore her hair in a short brown bob and had a small stud in her nose. Three months before Rena went missing, Kelly was in the throes of an intense relationship with a small blonde girl named Nicole Cook. 
According to Rebecca Godfrey, author of a book about Rena called Under the Bridge, of the two girlfriends, Nicole was the more charismatic, confident one. Both of the girls shared an interest in gangster rap, serial killers, and ruthless men like mafia boss John Gotti. Nicole would brag about stealing cars and dating crips, and she dreamed of one day moving to New York and becoming part of the mob. She said she'd like to become the first female hitman, or maybe I should say hit woman. A friend of hers thought she was cute, but a little twisted troublemaker. Kelly, her best friend, kept a sketchbook in her locker where she'd drawn pictures of gangsters shooting cops and line drawings of disembodied heads and severed hands. On that nightmarish November night, as the island skies were getting dark and gray, it seemed to Kelly and her friend that their fantasies of violence could become real and they could show everyone how tough they really were. It was Nicole's notebook that Rena had stolen. She had called some of the boys in it, telling them that Nicole wasn't as beautiful as she thought and that she had AIDS and that her eyebrows were fake. This act of mischief had raged Nicole, so she hatched a plan for revenge. She called some girlfriends and told them to meet her at the Shoreline School on Friday for a beatdown. A few days before the murder, her mother would overhear her on the phone talking with Kelly about digging a grave and burying a girl. Their plan was messy, and most thought the plans would fall through. Only a few knew that just three months earlier, Kelly and several other girls had lured another girl to a remote spot where they beat her and tried to set her hair on fire. Kelly was never charged, but the others were convicted. In another incident, Kelly was caught holding a knife to another student's throat. In November, as the teens gathered behind the school, strutting their stuff, throwing gang signs, and pouring their parents' alcohol into 7-Eleven Slurpees, nearly all of them were unaware of Kelly and Nicole's plan. Most of them hadn't even met Rena and had no idea what was going to happen. They were just hanging out and having a good time. When the police showed up to break up the party, some of the teens moved to the bridge, where it was dark and cramped. There was graffiti painted on the concrete and the smell of urine emanating from the ground, which sloped down to a saltwater inlet known as the Gorge. The fight broke out suddenly when Nicole put a cigarette out on Rena's head. When Rena cried out and swung back, Kelly punched her with a closed fist. Before long, six other girls and Warren Golotsky joined the fight. Of all the young teenagers arrested, it was the male, Warren, who most of society would think of as a criminal. He was slim and short with big eyes and dark curly hair. Teens might describe him as a heartthrob, a good-looking boy who physically wasn't yet a man, but who was forced to make adult decisions. His life was troubled. His mother was an alcoholic who hadn't been around for years. He'd been living with his father, a welder, who moved constantly, and most recently he lived in a trailer park in View Royal. But in the month before the murder, he'd been living at his friend Chris's house because his dad had left him to go live with a woman he'd met in a Vegas casino. Warren embraced gang life and boasted that he was a crip. He had never met Rena before, and he wasn't part of Nicole and Kelly's plan, but he had kicked Rena ferociously under the bridge. The following day, He'd gone to his girlfriend Sarita's home and asked her to bleach blood out of his pants. Sarita had been to the teen party the night before, but she wasn't feeling well, 
so Warren offered to take her home. Sadly, she declined his offer, and this was a decision she regretted. Warren confessed to Sarita that he and Kelly had followed Rena and that something bad had happened. Kelly had done something to Rena. Sarita took the information to police, and based on her statements, police arrested Warren and interrogated him for hours without a lawyer or a parent by his side. They didn't believe him when he said he stood by helplessly as Kelly dragged an unconscious Rena to the water and drowned her. They told him, you're the guy in this case. You're going down big time. Warren's version of the story was that he and Kelly went after Rena to warn her not to tell anyone about the assault. When they reached her and delivered their warning, Rena said through tears, fuck off, just leave me alone. Kelly then grabbed Rena's hands and told her that they were going to walk her home. Instead, she and Warren dragged her to the other side of the bridge into a grassy area where they started a second assault. They made her remove some of her clothing, a jacket, and shoes. During the process, Rena fell to the ground. Warren and Kelly lifted her and forced her up against a tree, where they hit her head against the trunk, rendering her unconscious. Kelly then dragged her over to the water, and as she did, Rena's pants began to fall off. Once at the water's edge, Kelly held Rena's head under the water with her foot while she smoked an entire cigarette. These details shocked the officers. They had a homicide on their hands, and they needed to find Rena's body, but not before the rest of the interviews were complete. A friend of Kelly's told police that she had returned to the crime scene the next morning with Kelly to throw away Rena's jacket and shoes that had been left there. All of them believed that Rena's body was in the water near the bridge. Kelly's story was vastly different. As the interview began, police told Kelly's shocked mother that they were just trying to get to the bottom of what happened to a girl named Rena Verk. Kelly, who had been laying with her head on her mother's lap in the interrogation room, looked up and said, Rena? I thought her name was Trina, and then yawned. During the interview, she claimed she was surprised and couldn't believe that she was being considered a suspect in the murder. At one point, she said, I'm a girl. I never thought girls get arrested for murder. It's not very ladylike. To which the investigator replied that Kelly didn't strike him as someone who was concerned with being ladylike. Kelly pleaded her innocence and tried to place blame on Nicole. She said lightheartedly that she had no doubt that Rena's killer could have been Nicole. She explained further, saying, She always says sick stuff, just weird, demented stuff. She wanted to bury someone. Nicole thinks it's cool if you hurt people and it's not. It makes you seem like a thug. Then she claimed that ladies don't do that kind of stuff. In a later interview, she'd paint herself as a scapegoat. This was the strategy her lawyers would later use in court. Police had found in Kelly's bedroom a black Calvin Klein jacket with the sleeves stained with salt water, consistent with samples taken from the gorge. But she would insist that this was from another day when she'd gone swimming. In the course of time, a large number of teenagers would come forward with damning statements and evidence against her, including recollections of her boasting that she finished Rena off and held her head underwater. She replied desperately to these accusations, This is high school. It's just rumors, rumors, rumors. Nicole was a bit more sly and certainly a more loyal friend. 
She refused to testify against Kelly, even when police played her audio clips of Kelly blaming her for the murder. Nicole remained unfazed and portrayed herself as naive and innocent. We don't talk about murder, she told detectives. We just talk about cigarettes and makeup. We don't talk about violence. Eight days after Rena went missing, police divers would retrieve her badly bruised body from the cold, dark water. And ten days after, coroner Dr. Laura Gray would present investigators with her gruesome assessment. There was a lot of damage to Rena's body. Multiple blows had been sustained in the abdominal area. Her wounds were compared to a convulsion injury, often seen in car crash victims. She had extensive bruising under the skin of her face and a bruise in the shape of a sneaker print on the back of her brain. In Rena's lungs, she found 18 pebbles. The presence of so many small stones led her to the conclusion that Rena had been alive when she went into the water. Her death was by drowning. In the spring of 1999, in a very swift trial, without a jury, a judge declared that Warren's testimony was incomplete and improbable. He was sentenced to life. He was tried as an adult and given the maximum sentence for Rena's murder. Then he was told he'd be sent to a notoriously tough prison, surrounded by fog and sheep farms. Outside the courthouse, his mother drunkenly and tearfully told the reporters, there's just no way he killed that girl. Kelly Ellard would ultimately have three trials, and it would take nearly a decade for her to be convicted. In her first trial, she presented herself as a timid schoolgirl. She chose to speak in a quiet voice, sometimes compared to Betty Boop or Shirley Temple. Some would say she even spoke with a faint trace of a British accent. Her large, extended family attended the trial daily, filling in the first row. In opposition to Warren's representation by a public defender who specialized in DUIs, Kelly's family took the counsel of one of Canada's most distinguished lawyers to represent their daughter, one that they still believed was unfairly accused. Before the jury, he would point out accurately that there was no DNA, no fingerprints, and no clothing, therefore rumor plus rumor still equals zero. Even so, a jury found her guilty in 2000. The judge even praised Kelly's overwhelming love of animals and handed down the lightest possible sentence because in her eyes, Kelly was a young, intelligent woman from a wonderful family. In 2001, the Supreme Court of Canada overturned her conviction on grounds she'd been improperly questioned. In 2004, during her second trial, the prosecutor relentlessly challenged Kelly in the courtroom. In this trial, a different side of Kelly emerged. She rolled her eyes and spoke with sarcasm. I'm not a monster, she screamed. I will still say I didn't kill Rena Verk until the day I die. A mistrial was declared when the jury deadlocked 11 to 1. In her third trial, she was found guilty and further appeals were denied. In prison, Kelly and Warren would take different paths. Warren avoided trouble. He kept his head down and even volunteered to speak to at-risk youths, sharing his story and warning them to make good choices. He also tried to appeal his conviction, but the appeal was overturned with the decision that he had taken part in Rena's death. He later became involved in a restorative justice program 
that worked to facilitate reconciliation between victims and offenders. He'd meet privately with Rena Verk's parents. He apologized sincerely. In an extraordinary act of forgiveness, they accepted his apology and even supported his request for full-day parole, which he received in 2010, after which he would give Rena's parents a hug. Suman Verk, Rena's father, would tell reporters that Warren was the only one who had taken responsibility for his actions out of all the accused. I wondered, while researching this case, whether Rena's parents' ability to forgive Warren was partially based on the fact that Rena had been a difficult child. She had been cherished by her parents, and when she hurt them, they were able to forgive her. She had been so young, lost, and confused. Perhaps they saw some of their daughter in Warren. Warren would say that if he had a daughter who was killed, he would be seething with rage. He was extremely touched when Suman Verk told him that the only way to make up for his daughter's death was for Warren to go out into the world and do good things with his life. That way, there would be some meaning in Rena's death. In contrast, Kelly continued to insist on her innocence and behaved in a manner that was bizarre and threatening. Not long after her arrest in a juvenile youth facility, Kelly was overheard saying, Until I'm sentenced, I'm going to be good, because I have to. After that, I'm just going to go psycho in here, like in the dining room or something, because there's guys in here I'd like to punch out, and girls too. They're trying to say it was all me, and that's bull. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not guilty. I had nothing to do with it, but I'm trying not to get into fights, because if I do, they'll think I murdered this girl. Her lawyers had tried to have her trial take place in youth court, but like Warren, this option was denied. At the trial, ten teenagers would testify, saying that Kelly seemed happy and proud about what she had done that night. The defense tried to say that she was a victim of conspiracy by all the other teenagers involved, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. In prison, she was accused of setting up a fight in which two inmates were beaten by another four inmates. She was also found hoarding dozens of toothbrushes, seemingly for makeshift shivs, and later she confessed to a year-long binge on contraband crystal meth. Soon after she turned 30, Kelly quit drugs and took a job in the prison library. She became pen pals with a 41-year-old man named Darwin. In October 2016, the Vancouver Sun crime reporter, Kim Bolin, broke the story that Kelly, at age 33, was eight months pregnant. She had been allowed conjugal visits with the man named Darwin, who was a former felon with gang ties. At a parole hearing in 2017, for the first time, Kelly would take responsibility for her role in the murder, although it came with a ridiculous story. She said she brought Rena to the water to splash her face and see if she would wake up. She denied holding Rena's head down, saying she was unconscious, so why would I have put my foot on her head? Kelly asked for, and was granted, escorted prison releases to take her newborn son to medical appointments. Soon after the baby was born, she told the parole board that the birth of her son was motivating and it had been the best therapy for her. At the time, she planned to continue her relationship with Darwin, who had been sent back to prison for his role in the disappearance of a drug dealer that he knew. She claimed that she needed to be with someone who had been in the prison system, 
because that was the only kind of person who could understand her and what she's been through. By 2022, Kelly Ellard, who changed her name to Carrie Sim, was 44 years old and the mother of two. She was authorized to remain on day parole with numerous conditions. The board's decision was based on Kelly's focus on her two sons. They required that she not consume illegal drugs or alcohol or have contact with certain people, including her baby daddy, because she later had accused him of violence. They also suggested that she look for employment, saying that she seemed reluctant to move ahead with the steps necessary to find work. Kelly did have a psychological risk assessment done in 2016, which pointed to a moderate to high moderate risk of future violence over the longer term. However, in allowing her to resume day parole, the board said she now understands her mental health needs and is engaged with psychologists. Raina's parents were sad that Kelly was allowed to have a family and children of her own when their daughter had that opportunity ripped away from her. They were also frustrated, as they well should be, that in the early days, the media portrayed Rena as a bad girl, while Kelly was portrayed as a good girl, likely because she was white and came from a traditional family. The media also created moral panic about bullying and teen violence in Canada. They warned of a surging wave of rage-filled girls, but in reality, the majority of young girls were just doing what young girls have always done which is go to school, play sports, pursue hobbies, and flirt with their classmates. As for Kelly Ellard, let's hope she's working hard towards becoming a productive member of society and that she follows Suman Verk's suggestion to Warren Glowatsky that she does good for herself, her community, and especially her children so that Rena's death could have some meaning. On that note, let's all go out and do something good for someone else today. Thank you so much for listening. Pictures to go along with this episode will be on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Patreon page, Facebook page, and Instagram page. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to give the podcast a five-star rating and review. And if you'd like to sponsor me, there are links in the show description to do so. It's your support that keeps this podcast going, and I truly appreciate everything you wonderfully twisted listeners do to support it. Thanks again, and to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.